Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me again for another episode of the Tiny DevOps Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall. On this show, we like to talk about solving big problems with small teams. Today, I'm uh, really happy to have with me Matt Parker. Uh, now, if you are a math nerd like I am, you might be thinking of Matt Parker from Stand Up Math's YouTube channel. That's not who's on today. <laughs> this is Matt K. Parker, author of the book, A Radical Enterprise. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Matt. I'm excited to talk about your book. Would you give us a brief introduction um, about your background? Tell us who you are. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I am now an author, but in the past I've been in, in engineering, right? And sort of actually I've grown up in that world because my dad and my dad's dad were both um, programmers. And yeah, so I've been around programming for a long time and, and got into the industry myself and spent maybe my first decade in it not being very happy, working for both startups and enterprises, but feeling like, yeah, this isn't a great experience. Why, why are people so miserable making software together? And then I was lucky enough to get a uh, call from a company called Pivotal Labs at the time. And I, they were a small consulting company back then in 2011. I knew they did things like extreme programming, not that I really knew anything about them, but I thought it was worth a try. And I'm really glad I took the chance because it was a life-changing experience. I got, in, uh, I got the job and I became immersed in the world of extreme programming and lean product development and human-centered design. And I got to experience that you know, from many different angles, both as an engineer working on teams and pair programming and trying to help others learn how to do all of it, but also as like a director trying to set up teams for excess so that they could be autonomous and self-organizing and really um, have all the liberating constraints that they needed to succeed. Yeah, so... Uh, that's that that whole experience, by the way, is sort of what led me to write the book, because uh, I thought, wow, there's really something to this. We're having so much fun together and we're having really great outcomes. Maybe those two things go hand in hand. Maybe if you find ways of working together that are really open and collaborative and help everyone leverage their intrinsic motivation and passion, that we'll end up doing great things for uh, our organizations, our customers, our businesses. And that led me into uh, research around this book, right? Who else is doing stuff like this? How far does it go? What size and shape does it take? And if they're successful, what can we really say accounts for that success? And there you have it. That's how I came up with this book, A Radical Enterprise. Nice. Are you still involved in, in software development these days, Dan? Or, or what are you doing now? So now I'm... I'm doing independent consulting really around the topics um, that you can read about in my book. So I'm trying to help organizations become more radically collaborative, more self-managing. How do they actually set up teams for success? How do they leverage ideas like team autonomy and managerial devolution, uh, candid vulnerability, and all this stuff to achieve great outcomes? And so I could say, you know, my day-to-day -day right now looks like a lot of leadership coaching at the moment. Uh, and that's what I focus on now. So no, I don't write a lot of code anymore, and okay. some days I miss it. Um, but I also feel good about what I'm doing now too. So. Oh, definitely. I hope so. <laughs> um, so one question I want to ask right off the top, before we even really dive into the topics of the book, uh, and this is because of the audience on this channel, since we focus on DevOps for small teams, the title of your book is A Radical Enterprise. And I want to ask, is are the topics relevant to small organizations too, or do they only work in large enterprises. Yeah, totally. Well, um, 
Absolutely, it's going to be relevant. I should say, too, that you can take the, the title two different ways, right? A radical enterprise could be referring to enterprise organizations. It can also be taken as uh, uh, an enterprise as an, a thing we set out to do, an enterprise in that sense as well. And I meant it to be taken in both ways. Um, the, the organizations I profile, 13 different organizations I profile in the book, range in size from, actually, I think the smallest is about a 25-person Internet of Things company you can find in San Francisco to the largest is an 80,000-person appliance manufacturer that's really spread around the globe and headquartered in China. So, um, yeah, and everything in between you can find as well. And I would say also the reason that uh, you're going to find my book relevant to the the um, topic of this podcast is because so many of these organizations have realized the power of small teams to the to such an extent that they've created organizations centered around the idea, the power of small groups of people achieving amazing outcomes uh, and being able to do so with autonomy and uh, with, with also alignment, even in a very large organization. So let's talk now about the book uh, and, and kind of the core thesis. Um, of course, I, I have read the book and I, I find it really uh, enlightening, but in your own words, uh, in, in just a, a minute or two, uh, you already start, started to talk about the, your history at Pivotal, which is how the book starts. Um, what was it about that experience and others that led you to, to uh, led you to your core thesis? What is that thesis, and how does this book address it? So the book is about, uh, broadly speaking, you could say it's about the topic of radical collaboration, um, and why my own experiences are relevant to that is because I experienced radical collaboration before I ever understood it. And that term, I should maybe break down a little bit too. What is radical collaboration? Why do you say radical in it, right? Radical can mean different things to different people in different contexts. So let's break that apart a little bit. My experience collaborating with other people up until I worked for Pivotal Labs, so my first sort of decade in industry, was uh, uh, not only not fun, it was, it was ultimately a demoralizing experience because collaboration was sort of stuff that was dictated by others. You two work together to do, achieve X. You put this together and throw over the wall to someone else. And that's what they call collaboration. And none of us understood why we were doing it or how we were going to succeed or anything like that in the first place. Uh, there was also a lot of anti-collaboration going on in the places I worked. In fact, at the enterprise I worked at before I joined um, Pivotal Labs, I was privy to and part of an 18th month long process to define a software development process. And the the process map that we created at the end of that 18 months was so complicated, has so many steps in it, that ultimately you could say all it was doing was sort of institutionalizing both incompetence and uh, a desire for everyone to be able to play CYA, right? Cover their ass in case anything went wrong and be able to point the blame somewhere else. I feel like that's all we ended up accomplishing and what a demoralizing sort of experience that really was. Um, so when I, when I say radical collaboration, what I mean is that when I went to Pivotal Labs and I began to experience pair programming and working on small teams that were empowered to achieve an outcome and empowered to figure out the best way to get there and to learn as they go and to have really tight learning loops with their customers that they're delivering hands into the so uh, software into the hands of, right? Like that ultimately was radical in the etymological sense of the word. It was radical because it changed the ground of collaboration. It changed the nature of my relationships to my peers around me, right? It was no longer a hierarchy. It was a heterarchy. It was a group of people, a 
peers, each with different experiences, each capable of leading in certain situations and following in others, everyone able to really leverage both their own experiences and their intrinsic motivations and passion to be able to geek out together and do really fun stuff together as software engineers and designers and product managers. That was such a beautiful experience, and it gave me hope that a better world really is possible, that it's not a foregone conclusion that software has to be a miserable experience or ultimately experience that leads nowhere and leads you to throw away years worth of work because somebody decides to scrap it at the end, right? Like, there is a better way out there, and that's what I ended up discovering. So the other thing I'll say about radical collaboration in the book is I'm really referring to a process in which people are collaborating as partners, as equals, as peers, on a basis of sort of voluntary commitment and um, responsibility to each other. So there's, there's, a, there's a complete lack of coercion within these environments. And in the, in it's not a coerced form of collaboration. It's very much um, a partnership form of collaboration. And that's, that's a lot of what underlies the experience and ultimately the success of a lot of these ways of working. It's a paradigm of partnership and equality that you can see at play in these companies. Amazing, and you know, I think that really fits with the DevOps mindset of, of collaboration. You know, I, I always say that DevOps is just another word for collaboration or cooperation. So I, I think that there's a really strong tie between these, these concepts. And we'll talk a bit more about that, I hope, in a moment. Um, before though, uh, what you've described sounds super nice. Uh, I can imagine that working in such a place would be fun and fulfilling. But what do you say to someone who says, if I want fun and fulfilling, I'm going to go move to a commune and I'm going to sit around a campfire and sing Kumbaya. Uh, what's the business impact? You know, how, how does this, you know, we have to make money too. Uh, how does that concern fit into this concept of radical collaboration? Yeah, well, obviously it's an important question, right? Uh, for better or worse, right, every company that's out there playing on the market live or dies on that market, right? They have to be able to actually succeed economically. And, you know, for a long time, throughout the whole 20th century, a lot of people sort of hypothesized that what would be good for people would also be good for the organization, right? Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, many other sort of psychologists and organizational scientists had this belief that there would be a great deal of synergy between individual and organizational uh, success. But uh, there wasn't a lot of evidence. And really, it's only in the past couple of decades that we've gained an, an increasing amount of empirical sort of evidence to say, like, these two things really are tightly correlated, right? When you create an organization in which people feel like they get meaning and fulfillment out of the job, in which they feel passionate, they have autonomy, they are engaged, you actually end up with some really outsized economic outcomes. Uh, and there's a great report that was um, uh, run sort of successfully, sort of like a longitudinal report about this idea, what's good for people is good for organizations. It's called the How Report. And it, it, you can read about it in the book as well. It really breaks down organizations into three fundamental archetypes, one of which is radically collaborative. And in, over the uh, last 10 years, we can see that the number of radically collaborative organizations has grown from like 3% to 8%. And that their outcomes, their economic outcomes, that are vastly superior to their much more traditional and hierarchical competitors. Um, and the outcomes also for individuals within the organizations are superior. Uh, and so you can see that tight correlation at play. I, I would also add that if you, if you want just another sort of soundbite there around, is this really economically successful? Um, uh, there are, let's see, three or four different organizations I can point to in the book, and you can read about yourself all over the interwebs. Uh, Hire, which is the number one appliance manufacturer in the world and an 80,000 person enterprise, has for the last 40 years 
transform from a very traditional command and control hierarchy to a very radically collaborative structure that they refer to as microenterprises. Um, uh, and they're the, now the number one appliance manufacturer in the world, and they've really gotten there over the last decade and a half as they've really pioneered a whole new way of working based on a quality partnership and radical collaboration. So they're a great success story if you want to see like at a very massive scale these ideas and how they can play out and how successful they can be for a company. Check out Hire. Another organization you can read about in the book is Morningstar, which is the number one tomato processor in the world, and they're based in California. They have such an amazing radical process. They start every year as equals without titles, and they write something called colleague letters of understanding, and it's really the negotiated commitments that they're making to each other that year about how they're going to take that year's tomato crop and turn it into you know, puree and diced tomatoes and everything else for all of their clients like Heinz, ketchup, everything else, right? And so they're another example of radical collaboration at play in that partnership and equality are more uh, competitive than domination and coercion. Uh, W.L. Gore, if you've ever bought a raincoat, you've probably worn Gore-Tec waterproof fabric. If you've ever flossed your teeth, you've probably used Glide Dental Floss, right? The company behind all these products is W.L. Gore, and they're an innovation factory. I mean, they're an amazingly innovative organization, and they are also one of the longest-lived experiments in radical collaboration on the planet. They started in the late 50s with a completely radically collaborative structure, and it was just four people in a basement. And now they are 10,000 people spread around the globe, innovating at a global scale using these same ideas. Um, I'll stop there. There's more in the book you can read about, but hopefully that gives you a sense like there is really something to this, and there are some very significant economic stories that we can point to related to these ways of working. Yeah, that's great. And, and I remember reading the, those examples too and, and thinking it's not just that this does work as a business model, but it's actually a superior business model, at least in many cases. So that's that's encouraging if you're, uh, if you're worried about meeting the the budget uh, using radical collaboration, uh, I don't think you probably need to really be worried about that. I think you can do it anyway. Would you mind taking us through the four imperatives that you've identified? Um, just just briefly, you know, a high level overview, uh, and, and then we can talk about some of those in more detail. Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, you know, I'm not only trying to show a bunch of companies doing, working in radically collaborative ways, I'm also trying to, I'm asking the question, why do they succeed? Succeed? Like what? What stands at the foundation of their success? So that other companies interested in doing these things will have a sense of like, well, what's it going to take, right? Because it's probably not just one or two things that you're going to have to think about or cherry pick from other companies. There's something deeper and more holistic here that you need to be aware of. And I broke that down into what I call the four imperatives um, of radical collaboration. So all of these companies, at some level, are exhibiting four sort of imperative things that I think stand at the base of their success, and that's one, team autonomy, two, managerial devolution, three, deficiency need gratification, and four, candid vulnerability. So team autonomy is probably a concept that your uh, listeners are already familiar with, right? In all of these different companies, you can see a strong sense of empowered teams being able to achieve an outcome, but figuring out day-to-day -day how they're getting there, right? Um, like, what is their backlog? How are they working together as a team? What practices are they using? When are they working? Where are they working? Are they distributed, co-located, et cetera? Like, these kind of elements are really left up to the team. And it's not surprising, right? There's a great deal of neuroscience research, actually, over the last 20 years that's developed that points to a strong correlation between individual success and individual autonomy, team success and team autonomy, right? Individuals and teams are successful by and large to the extent that they believe in what they're doing. And one of the best ways for them to believe in what they're doing 
is to figure it out themselves, right? To come to their own ideas and conclusions, right? So maybe as an organization, you say like, oh, we need to increase, you know, uh, consumption of this product by 5% this year, but a team getting together and saying, how are we going to do that, right? How should we, how should we get, you know, 5% growth in our customer base this year? Oh, I have an idea. You have an idea. We're coming up with ideas. We're trying things out. We're experimenting. That's at base what is going on with team autonomy. So the second thing, managerial devolution, that really points to a process of from hierarchy to hierarchy. Now, hierarchy is a technical term. If you're not familiar with it, you could just think of it as a network of self-organizing, self-linking teams, right? And so these organizations are by and large moving from a traditional command and control pyramid structure to a structure in which it is much more like a network. Part of that is creating sophisticated ways to do governance at scale. Right? How do we iterate on our structure as an organization without people at the top dictating everything, right? With us being able all to sense and respond tensions within the organization, sense and respond to tensions within the organization, resolve them together, right? And do that in a decentralized and distributed way. And so when you see an organization like Hire, for instance, which is composed of thousands of microenterprises, each consisting of 10 to 15 people, and you can see all kinds of fundamental changes in the way those microenterprises are relating to each other, the roles within them, uh, the, the networks of them collaborating together or not as they see fit, you can see that growing and changing very quickly and rapidly over time and responding to changes in the market very rapidly. And I think that's a lot of what points to their success, right? Being able to iterate on your organization right? In the same way that you would iterate on a software product, right? But doing it at an organizational or meta level is a really powerful thing. And being able to leverage the mind share of your whole organization to do that, right? And being able to respond in all kinds of different ways to different things happening in the market and an ecosystem, that's where I think a lot of their success and nimbleness and agility comes from. So the third thing, the third imperative was deficiency need gratification. That's a term I borrowed from the field of positive psychology. Deficiency needs are really needs that all humans have and are motivated to rectify if they become deficient in them. These are needs that are over and above animals. So humans don't just need food and water and shelter, right? We need security, autonomy, fairness, esteem, trust, belongingness, love, meaning, purpose, fulfillment, right? We have these higher, higher level human needs that we also need to satisfy to be full and complete human beings, to be at our best. Um, and these organizations have realized like, oh, if we create an environment in which people feel like they're really getting that out of all of this, right, then we have some really amazing outcomes as an organization because no one's walking around disengaged, no one's walking around, you know, being toxic or anything like that because they are already getting their sense of security, autonomy, fairness, esteem from the nature of their interpersonal interactions with each other and the nature of the organization itself. Um, so there's, you know, different stories I point to in the book around all of that and how they accomplished efficiency need gratification. Lastly, candid vulnerability. That's really about a beautiful thing you can see happening inside these radically collaborative organizations. It points to the nature of collaboration within them. Um, it's the ability for people in these companies to say very courageously what they think, but even more courageously why they think it. Right? They don't hide their sort of hidden world of inferences, agendas, assumptions, biases, etc. from each other. They make all that vulnerable to critique, exploration, examination, etc. And in doing so, they, they end up collaborating in ways in which they can all surface ideas together and also untether those ideas from the egos that they came from. 
And so you end up with this world in which innovation is a collaborative exercise. You're not just waiting for a Steve Jobs to come and say, I have a brilliant idea, everyone go execute it. You're actually coming up with brilliant ideas together, ideas that no one individual could come up with on their own because you actually need to put a lot of really smart minds together to do it. That's what these companies excel at as well, and I think that's part of why they're so successful. You started off with team autonomy and mentioned that the, the audience here probably is familiar with that. Uh, because we come from a largely an agile software manifesto style background where that's kind of one of the core tenets of, of the agile movement uh, and DevOps grew out of that. What relationship do you see between agile and, and maybe DevOps and this radical collaboration? Are, are, are they along a spectrum, uh, the same spectrum? Are they different? H how do they relate? I think it's this, what, what we're seeing um, in spaces like self-management, radical collaboration, self-governance, et cetera, is really an extension of a lot of the ideas that drove uh, the Agile movement in the first place, right? Like uh, ultimately in DevOps, Scrum, Agile, XP, et cetera, all of these different uh, streams have come together with the idea that collaboration is important, empowerment is important, uh, be, teams being able to iterate and learn as they go, that's all important, right? And I think we've also seen this idea fail a lot within the industry, right? Organizations try to implement it and discover their teams still struggle, their teams still, you know, just focus on execution without understanding value, their teams, you know, still exhibit a lot of the symptoms that they started with. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that agility isn't just something a team does, it's something an organization has to do as well. And it is hard to be agile in a, in a command and control structure, right? With everything you want to do, you have to pretty please your boss for and see it run up the flagpole to higher and higher levels of, of your organizational hierarchy before anybody decides anything can get done. You discover a lot of teams feel like their hands are tied behind their back. They don't actually have agency and empowerment and autonomy. They can't really decide what they're doing day over day to figure out how to achieve an outcome. They're just being given a set of tasks still at the end of the day and being measured on whether or not they completed them, irrespective of the value those tasks may actually have. So I, I, I see uh, radical collaboration and self-management very much as an extension of the whole uh, Agile movement and DevOps movement. There have been other attempts, of course, to, to try to codify some of the things you've talked about. And one, one simple example that comes to mind is the concept of OKRs, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, Andrew Grove, I think, made them popular or introduced them to the world in his book, High Output Management. He was the former CEO of Intel. And you know, the basic idea is that management decides what we're going to do, or, or it decides the objectives we want to reach, but then lets the teams decide how to achieve them. What is your thought on this approach? Like, it, it, it's, it's some of the autonomy you're talking about, but not all of it. Is that good or bad? Or again, is it along a spectrum? It is absolutely a spectrum. There's no there's no real litmus test that says you are or you aren't self-managing, self-governing, radically collaborative, etc. Um, I think I think the trick is in a world in which people not only deciding, for instance, a high level set of portfolio level outcomes to achieve as a business, but also having higher and fire and performance review power over everyone who's then tasked with achieving some kind of outcome you end up with a lot of weird dynamics at play in those in those organizations. And so even with something like OKRs, people actually still really struggle. Um, uh, so I, I, that's where I see those things sort of failing. And, I, you know, what I find really beautiful about a lot of these companies, I, there's this, 
there's this, I think, knee-jerk reaction a lot of people have to non-hierarchical organizations, self-governing organizations to say like, oh, but it all must just be chaos. It must just be unstructured madness where, you know, either nothing gets done or the loudest voice wins or something like that, right? There's still got to be some kind of power structure there at the end of the day. Well, in reality, I think what these organizations have figured out is that their ability to succeed as an organization depends largely on the degree to which people are clear about what their role is, what success for that role is, and what is their domain of authority within that role. And so in these radically collaborative organizations, you can see people having um, uh, a role like uh, you know, portfolio manager or something where they are deciding at a very high level, here's an outcome we're going to try to achieve, like 5% growth in, in margins or something like that, or 5% headcount or customer base growth or something like that. You know, You can see people in these organizations doing that, but that's not a hierarchical position of authority. It's literally like there are people whose job it is to figure that stuff out at a high level and to liberate teams to go achieve outcomes because what those people don't have the power to do is to tell a team how to get there, right? They don't have the power to say like, okay, you not only have to achieve this outcome, but here's the 10 tasks you're going to do to achieve it. And here's the five technologies you get to play with, et cetera, right? Like there's not, that's not happening in these companies. So you know, if you look at a classic balanced extreme programming team, you could you could see really three primary roles, product manager, designer, and engineer. And so much of what that makes that team succeed is the clarity they have around whose job it is to decide what, right? A product manager has a domain of authority at the end of the day, and that domain of authority is the prioritized backlog. On a classic XP team, they have the authority to say, this is the next most important thing for us to work on as a team. I prioritize this story at the top of the backlog and not this story. Right? And engineers then pull from the top of the backlog because they honor that priority and they honor the PM's ability to make that decision. Now, the designer has a domain of authority around the user experience and user interfaces reflected in those stories. No one else gets to tell them what user interface or what user experience is reflected by these stories. It's their job to decide. We can all give them advice and thoughts, but they make the call at the end of the day. The engineers have domain of authority over the code. It's this clarity that they have around their roles, I think, that is it can point to so much of their ability to move very quickly as a team, to iterate, to experiment, to not get too hung up on like, is this the right thing to be doing? Because they know they're just going to keep learning as they go no matter what, and no decision is ever going to be perfect, right? So that that same idea, these self-managing radically collaborative organizations, they've taken that idea from the team level and said, what if we created that same level of clarity within the organization as a whole? That's such a powerful concept. It's so clarifying and so empowering to everybody in, in the organization to have that form of clarity. The book talks about something you called the advice process. And I know this wasn't your invention, but would you, would you tell me what that is? And then I have a question about uh, some of its implications. Yeah. Okay, so the advice process, it's one of many different forms of sort of um, decentralized governance that you can find in radically collaborative organizations. It's probably one of the older ones, and its origins are in a place you would never expect. So let me first describe what it is, and then let me tell you where it started. Okay. The advice process is the idea that anyone in the organization can make any decision so long as they consult everybody that's going to be affected by the decision, solicit their advice while also making their own ideas, beliefs, positions, perspectives, etc., open to examination, critique, et cetera, by all the people that would be affected, right? That's a pretty wild idea because it sounds like you're giving everyone the power to do anything. And, oh, what, you know, bad actors, what, what would happen? Okay, so as crazy as that sounds, it gets even crazier because this idea started at a company called AES. Um, 
which I think was like Advanced Energy Services. I, I forget the exact, like what those acronyms, start, I'd have to look it up now. But anyways, they were a power, um, uh, a power company, right? Building like um, coal-fired power plants, et cetera, generating electricity. Uh, I think even nuclear power plants they had for view over. They were, had power plants all over the globe. And the founders were very much motivated by the idea that there's no point in going through life creating miserable experiences for everyone. So if we're going to go make our own power plant company, how can we do it in such a way that everyone enjoys their job and finds meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in it? And they came to the conclusion that people only enjoy their jobs to the extent that they actually get to make meaningful decisions day over day, which is ultimately what autonomy means. Autonomy means having choices, being able to make choices and run with them and not have them second-guessed by everyone else or overridden by everyone else. And so they've pioneered this idea called the advice process to really fantastic effect within their company. And there's all kinds of, I even point to some um, stories in the book about this, not only about the founders and their own experience doing this, but uh, the experience of people within the company, like going from pulling coal off a boat to calling up um, you know, Chase Bank in Manhattan and asking, like, can they get a $10 million loan, right? Like, people doing those two things, you wouldn't normally assume the same person could do both. But it turns out they can, and they enjoy their lives so much more when they are able to sort of leverage their own intrinsic interest for the good of the organization. Um, uh, so anyways, that same idea has been taken and adapted uh, by many organizations, including some in the book. Um, it's only one of many different forms of sort of I would say radically collaborative governance you can see at play. So it's it's not the only one out there, but mm -hmm. um, it's a pretty fascinating one. So you you, you brought up the, the topic that I'm interested in, in drilling in on, and that is bad actors. Uh, you, know, you, you make it sound like it's not really a concern, uh, and, and I, that's probably true. Uh, but what if just on some off chance, somebody decides that they are going to give themselves a $5 million pay raise, or they're gonna buy a fleet of corporate jets that they can't afford, or so, something ridiculous. What's the recourse in place uh, to prevent these bad actors from, from acting bad? <laughs> well, so in some of these companies, uh, ultimately, the ultimate recourse is, of course, getting fired, getting kicked out. And we all know how that works in a traditional organization, right? Who has higher and fire power? Well, it's people within the hierarchy. And the higher up you go, the more higher and fire power they have. Um, within these radically collaborative organizations, often what you see is that higher and fire power is left to the teams themselves. Right? So they all have not only the ability to bring new people into the organization, they also have the ability to remove people from the organization if they believe those people don't belong, if they believe that they are bad actors or have done something that there's no forgiveness for. Right, um, So I tell some stories about that in the book. Um, uh, for instance, at an organization, it was called Nearsoft while I was doing research. It's now called Encora. But anyways, a software company. And they basically had the rule that any team could fire any team member at any time. And however, if they do it, they then have to go before the whole company and tell everyone what they did and be transparent about it, answer any questions, criticisms, concerns anyone has. Um, and believe it or not, that well, they haven't had to do it very much. I think they can point to three instances of actually doing this in their you know, last 15 years of existence. Um, but they also um, have this feeling that like that is both ultimately a very fair way of doing it and sort of maybe the only right way to do it. Um, uh, and so that that's how they try to account for, you know, the small group of people of bad actors. You can see many companies creating very convoluted sort of handcuffs for everybody in the organization 
out of fear that a bad actor, right, or a bad apple will spoil the bunch, these organizations don't have that same fear, or at least they don't have the same response to it. Right? Maybe they still are concerned, like one day somebody could walk in and do something bad, but their approach to managing is it to say everyone is on guard for it, and everyone has the power to see it, call it out, and remove it from the organization. Nice. And so I imagine, of course, if I were to fire you unjustly, and I go in front of the whole company and explain that, then somebody might fire me. In that case, probably <laughs> yeah, justly, might. right? <laughs> totally. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of a natural check and balance system. That's, that's good. Yeah. I, I want to ask another question, uh, sort of the flip side of this. So l- later in the book, you talk about uh, different ways of addressing salary. And one of the ways that you mentioned some of these companies do salary is by self-assigning salary through the, uh, the advice system. And I remember you saying that uh, in the companies that do this, the, the average salary increased by 10%. It wasn't outrageous. You know, mm-hmm. People weren't doubling their own salaries and stuff like that. I'm concerned, though, in the same way that we hear that unlimited vacation time often means people take less vacation, do you have any evidence or reason to think that if we're all given the freedom to accept a salary that we end up working for less than we would otherwise? I don't have any evidence to think that, but I do have the... The same background you do that leads me to ask that question. Absolutely. And it's a question you'd have to ask and always want to watch out for, right? Uh, so, you know, I didn't find any examples of it um, in these companies that, that that particular thing is going on. In fact, yeah, to the opposite, as you point out, right? Salaries in general tend to go up. But the the other thing that's going up in these companies at the same time is retention, right? Mm-hmm. People leave jobs for many different reasons, right? And it's complicated. But one reason everyone that we can always point to is that some people leave jobs because they don't feel like they're being compensated appropriately. And that particular aspect of it seems to be going away in these companies that have moved to a self-managing salary process. Um, and the fact that though you, that these companies that do it, that they're, that salaries are in effect transparent within the organization, and that when anyone wants to change their salary, they are telling their peers about it, and they're being transparent about it, and even soliciting their advice about it, Right. It, it's, it is also, a, I guess, a check and balance against things getting out of control, people taking too much. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it does seem sort of universal that salaries go up when companies do this. But, you know, given that it, it you know, a conservative estimate is that it, it costs uh, twice a, a knowledge worker's annual salary to replace them. Right. And that's just the average knowledge worker. Right. So um, there can be, you know, some, it, it could be even much more expensive to replace somebody that maybe is more sort of integral to an organization. Right. It, it is important that we be doing things to increase retention, because although salaries may have risen by 10 percent, if retention has also gone way up, they're actually saving money in the end. I can also imagine that when you couple this with the candid vulnerability that you're if, if I'm underpaying myself, my colleagues may start to call me out on that and say, Jonathan, you're, you, you haven't taken a pay raise in three years. It's, it's time you should consider that. I, I can imagine a conversation like that happening when people are open and honest with each other. So your book comes out, um, I, I, I don't know, in, in my mind, it's, it's one in a series of books on similar topics. Uh, I'm thinking of books like Reinventing Organizations, Team of Teams, um, one I haven't read yet, Corporate Rebels, I think is along the same vein. I think you mentioned that in your book. Um, for people who have read some of these books, what does this book add to the conversation in your mind? Um, wh- where does it fit on that landscape of these books about new ways of organizing? Yeah, so I think my book offers two things that should hopefully be complementary to this whole sort of genre. One is uh, a 
uh, a focus on technology organizations. I don't look only at technology organizations. I've already mentioned several that aren't purely technology organizations, but there are also many software organizations profiled in this book. And so I'm also sort of um, triangulating on technology-specific ways of working that I see coming up in these organizations, which leads me to talk about things like the outcome team paradigm um, and uh, human-centered design. Uh, and, you know, some other stuff that you can see being expressed through agile practices like Scrum, so forms of autonomy of practice and autonomy of allocation, um, autonomy of schedule. Um, so anyways, uh, that's part of, I think, what you'll get out of my book that will be new uh, if you've already read all the other books in the genre. The other bit, too, is um, the imperatives that you can read about in my book that, you know, sort of synthesize from these different organizations and see as sort of integral to their success. Um you, to, to my mind, and I'm pretty well read in this sort of space, it's not anywhere else within the literature. So I think it'll add a new dimension to your thinking um, when it comes to understanding why these organizations succeed. And it's, it's multidisciplinary. Uh, I mean, I'm pulling together both organizational science and sociology and psychology and economics to try and sort of explain um, what, what stands at sort of the root of their success. One critique I hear frequently about these types of books and many other, especially books in the business uh, genre, broader, more broadly speaking, is that they tend to focus only on the successes and maybe you get a little bit of a selection bias. Now, you've mentioned already uh, in our conversation today that some companies have tried some of these radically collaborative ideas and failed. What's been your sense? Um, what percentage maybe fail or maybe you don't have the percentage, but just like Kind of give us a sense. Like you've given us a nice profile in the book of the ones that have not failed, that they're succeeding. Um, what's your sense of of the other side of that story, and and what leads to that? If you have insights, sure. Okay. Well, this this sort of dovetails with um, the topic of you know transformation and what we're seeing succeed and what we're seeing fail with respect to organizations transforming, moving down the spectrum. Um, you know, in some sense, there is at least a very nascent, you know, radically collaborative um, uh, angle to any sort of agile transformation that you see going on in companies, and certainly some more than others, right? And we've seen plenty of those fail, um, which I think is what I mentioned earlier. I, there are sort of three empirically validated transformation strategies that seem to be succeeding. So that's a bottom-up transformation strategy, a top-down plus bottom-up transformation strategy, and uh, for lack of a better word, I'll call it a, a democratic transformation strategy. Um, there's there's a number of you know success stories that we can point to to say empirically these strategies seem to work, and it's probably for these reasons. The one that seems to always fail is the top-down transformation strategy. So you can often end up in an organization in which you discover there next there's some enlightened leader that thinks that for the good of the organization they're going to transform it. And they're trying to create an organization in which people are more empowered, autonomous, self-organizing, uh, self-managing, self-governing, right? Trying to eliminate hierarchy and domination and coercion. But they end up going about it in a very hierarchical, top-down, command and control way. And that is such a, uh, such a you know, oxymoron, right? You can't achieve autonomy by reducing people's autonomy, right? Like these two things don't really go together. 
and I think that's what you see in a lot of agile transformations, even if we just take it at that level, right? You can see it a lot of sort of inflicted help, people saying, this is going to get us there and telling other people what to do. And people just like, oh, my boss tells me I got to do this now, right? And not understanding it, not believing it, not feeling like they have any choice in it. And so, of course, it fails, Right? The most successful transformations are the ones in which people are doing the transformation work themselves, owning that journey, deciding moment to moment, day to day, what's the next step they're taking down this path, right? If you get a bunch of people together and they're all united around the belief that there is a better way of working, collaborating together, one that is based on partnership and equality, not domination and coercion, that we can actually all adult together in a much more reasonable and uh, way in which gives us more meaningful fulfillment, then they can actually also take that journey together. You don't have to have somebody come in and tell you what to do at that point. The best thing you can do is leverage uh, the sort of natural success you have when you start making choices because you own them, because you learn from them, because you take the next step, right? And doing that together as a group. And in fact, one of the technology organizations in my book, uh, Tim Group, um, uh, I tell sort of their transformation story. And it really is that sort of story. It, there was an enlightened leader, but he was enlightened enough to know that there would be no point in just dictating the new way of working to everyone. That instead, he brought everyone together to talk about how can we manage this organization together? And what's the state of the art of doing that? And what's on the cutting edge of that? And they all began to research together and they all took little by little steps together. And he just had the authority to support them along the way until he eventually, I mean, created a whole new organizational structure, which devolved many of his own authorities into the organization at large. But the organization was more powerful because of it, right? So I don't know. Those are some of my high-level thoughts on it. I don't. I definitely don't have a percentage on like how many fail and how many succeed, but yeah. I do want to say it's a complex journey. It should not be undertaken lightly. That It, it should definitely be undertaken, but don't go into it with naivety. Okay. Um, uh, it takes a lot of work and a lot of sort of diligence to take it step by step and you're not just going to pick one thing and say, oh, team autonomy, we got it, and we don't need to think about any of these other imperatives, right? That's not going to work. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue into my, my last series of questions here. Uh, the first one is, um, well, let, let me start small. Is it possible for an individual, maybe somebody sitting on a team, and they've read your book, and they think this would be great, but nobody else on their team or in the company maybe knows about it or cares about it. Is that something that they should, uh, what, what can they do with that? Um, or, or, or does it really require uh, a bigger groundswell of support before this sort of transformation can start going? I hope that yeah. question makes sense. I think it does, yeah, absolutely. Like, what can I do? Me, mm -hmm. right, today, right? I'm just sitting in an organization. I've had the aha moment. Maybe no one else around me has had that moment, right? Should I just leave and find someone else that already gets it? Should I try and convince others around me? Exactly. Okay, well, I do believe that radical collaboration, uh, first and foremost, it's a mindset shift, right? And it is something that is possible for anybody to do at some scale, any moment, every day, right? They can, they can always treat other people around them with security, autonomy, fairness, esteem, and trust, Right? There is nothing stopping anyone from doing that at any moment during the day. And it doesn't matter how draconian your organization is. 
right? They don't control your ability to be a good human being towards other people. So at the very least, that is a start that you can make. And it really does actually begin to make a difference because as you begin to model deficiency, need gratification, and candid vulnerability, you begin to see your relationships change with people. You begin to create spaces for more trust. All right, now you can take that a step further. And if you, just at a team level, maybe you're like, look, outside of this team, I don't think I can accomplish anything right now. But in my team, I think there's space for me to say, hey, what if we did this meeting that we're about to do in a very collaborative way instead of just waiting for the boss to come in and tell us all what to do? What if we had an idea together on our own about like how could we work through this problem ourselves, right? What stands in our way from achieving success? Whatever it is you're trying to accomplish as a team, there's all kinds of great radically collaborative meeting techniques out there, some of which I just wrote about um, and was published on my publisher's blog, um, uh, which I'll I'll, I'll share the link with you afterwards. And you can take small little steps like that to begin to create more and more space for radical collaboration. And I have to say, based on my own experience, those ways of working are addictive. (laughs) Once you experience it, you want to experience it again because you get something out of it, right? You don't just succeed more as a team. You also feel better as a person, right? And you feel closer to the people around you. You feel like you actually do have... You know, maybe you're on a team in which you feel like it's very disharmonious and people are always debating and arguing with each other. When you begin to experience collaboration, you realize that under the surface of that, there is a lot of shared humanity, shared goals, shared interests, shared concerns, right? Even if the ideas that you all had on the surface appeared very different. And right, once you discover that common base uh, from which to work from, radical collaboration begins to proceed very naturally and very powerfully because you begin to put your heads together and really do some amazing stuff. Um, yeah, so I think that's another great step to take. I really like um, that Tim Group story I mentioned earlier because it starts with a reading group, right? Which is something a lot of people probably have the space to do within their own companies to start a reading group. And it doesn't have to be around my book, right? It could just be around maybe an article that you find on Harvard Business Review or something like that. Like, let's read some of these things and just start there, right? Which is what they did at Tim Group. And they went a really long way with that, uh, just with that co-exploration together. Uh, was really inspiring for a lot of people. So yeah, so I think I think there's space for anyone to take this. Now, at the same time, I don't think if somebody feels like they're in a truly toxic workplace, I I would never tell somebody, oh, but you have to stick it out and you have to be the hero and you have to transform it. I don't think that's the right thing to do. You know, I, I would never tell somebody to do that. If somebody wants to do that, great. But I, I'm not saying that. So I just want to be clear. So from that's a good answer from the, the, the standpoint of an individual. Um, from the standpoint of an organization, is there an ideal time in an organization's lifestyle? Let, let, let's think of maybe a typical startup. You, know, you start uh, pre-funding and then you, you build a product and you hopefully get some, some VC funding and you, you're growing rapidly. Is there a particular point along the way where it makes sense to start focusing on this? I mean... Is it the very beginning or do you need a certain critical mass before it makes sense or, or something else I'm not thinking of? Mm. The earlier, the better. That is my own belief, right? The longer you go, the, the more and more you entrench uh, a hierarchical way of working based on domination and coercion, the more and more damage you do, the more and more opportunities you miss, the more and more uh, productivity you lose as a consequence, right? As people become more and more disengaged over time, as a hierarchy becomes more bigger and bigger and the bureaucracy behind it becomes slower and slower right so many people walk into enterprises these days uh, and just experience like 
you know, sort of glacial <laughs> movement within the company, right? It feels like nothing is changing at any time. Nothing could change, right? Everything feels so rigid, so unable to accommodate any sort of change. So the earlier, the better. But I think regardless, there's no good, there's there's no better time than now, I guess is another way of putting that. So even if you are way down the road and you feel like you have a ton of problems, don't wait any longer, right? Start today. Don't start small. Don't boil the, or don't start big. Don't boil the whole ocean at once, right? Um, uh, but you can actually always launch into this. Um, it is possible, I think. And I've seen this, right? Um, I've, I've seen radical collaboration, at least from an experiential standpoint, and even from an organizational and authority standpoint, I've seen this uh, take fire in organizations you might never expect it, like the U.S. military, for instance, right? I think everyone has this idea that the military would be a very command and control place, and I'm sure it often is or is in many places. And yet, you, uh, I've seen it take off uh, from a software engineering standpoint in the military, and I've also read about it taking off in places like the Navy. Maybe many of your listeners are familiar with the book Turn the Ship Around. Well, ultimately, what David Marquet is talking about in that book are, is radical collaboration, right? He's pushing information to authority. That's one of the central tenets in that book. That's also a central tenet behind radical collaboration, right? Being able to empower people to sense and respond to the situation on the ground at that moment without having to wait and let someone else think for them, but being able to put their heads together with the information they have in their hands, right, and make decisions together. That's a very powerful thing, and we see it even happening in places like the military. So, yeah, I think it's possible anywhere. Don't don't lose hope. Right. So supposing that uh, somebody's listening and they're maybe a solo founder, or, or maybe imagine that you're starting your own company as a solo founder, what foundations can you like? Because when you're by yourself, I mean, what, maybe there's some sort of collaboration you can do, but it doesn't seem intuitive. What groundwork can you start to lay before you make that first hire or you find your co-founder or whatever? Are, are there things you can be doing already uh, by yourself to, to, to lay the groundwork? Yeah. So when you're growing an organization, especially in the very beginning, it's because you can't do it all. You need help, right? You need a partner. Right. And so often people in the very beginning, they do have, at least in some sense, a partnership mindset with their first hires. Like, wow, I, this thing could be really cool, but there's no way I'm going to do it on my own. It's too much. I'm killing myself. Right. Can I find some other cool people to come do this with me? All right. So one way you can make that succeed is not only having a partnership mindset with those first hires, but also being pretty clear about who's deciding what at any given moment. Right. Maybe you have a role um, that's related to product strategy. Maybe you're hiring somebody else and you need them to have a role that's related to um, a a selling strategy or something like that. Well, each of those roles are going to be successful to the extent that they have a very clear domain of authority or or, or another way to put that is a very clear autonomous decision-making rights, right? Okay, well, as... Uh, someone who's designing product strategy or, or, or role responsible for it, I get to make decisions about X, Y, and Z. As somebody in charge of sales, you're making decisions about A, B, and C. And I can't override your decisions even though I hired you and you can't override my decisions, right? Like that's the idea behind autonomous roles that you have something about which you can make a decision about. And no one in the organization, whether the CEO or the janitor, can say otherwise, right? That's that's the clarity you need. And so I think you can you can actually sort of leapfrog a lot of dysfunction that results from ambiguity in many organizations by creating clarity early and often, right? There's never a bad moment to create more clarity about what success is for a particular role, uh, what it's held to account for, 
and uh, what its domain of authority is. There's another uh, way in which you can uh, supercharge collaboration from the get-go. When you're hiring your first people in and bringing them in, you can take a collaborative approach to decision-making as opposed to what's known as an adjudicative approach, right? Most people in the West are raised to operate within a very adjudicative model, right? Almost like a legal model of decision-making in which people are debating ideas and positions as if one is right and the other is wrong or as if they are dichotomous, right? A collaborative approach steps back from the initial perspectives people have and positions people have to identify underlying concerns, needs, goals, wants, desires, etc., and to use that as a basis for generating ideas together, collaborating together on a shared solution mindset, etc. And so there are many things in an organization, even when an organization has a great deal of clarity on roles, in which you still are bringing together a number of people to look at something from many different perspectives, put their heads together, and come out of it with something to say like, oh, we're going to do X now, and we're going to try it, and we're going to learn from it, right? There's a collaborative way of doing that that is not based on Let's all get in a room and yell at each other until somebody wins, right? Like yeah. until the loudest voice wins. That's instead based on uh, a much more partner, uh, partnership model and collaborative model of decision making. So anyways, that's something I think people have to sort of get their minds around early on. Really good advice. My last question, which I'm sure is not, that doesn't have an answer, but I have to ask it because everybody's thinking it. How long does this transformation take? Yeah. It depends, <laughs> right? So I'm thinking now in the book, of the, of the 13 organizations I profiled, one went through a, let's say, 40-year transformation, right? Mm-hmm. They had already been a company for 80 years, and they spent the next 40 years slowly evolving. And they had a lot of success along the way, too. They didn't have to wait till the end to reap all the benefits, let me be clear. But they did spend a full 40 years transforming until they really pioneered a whole new way of working. Okay, so uh, there's also stories in which organizations transform much faster, but they were smaller, right? So I can point to one that transformed over the course of about five years, right? Step by step, incremental, like change by change until they arrived at a really radically collaborative way of working. I think another way to say that though is I don't think people should see transformation as an activity or a project, which you do and then once you're done, you get all the benefit, right? Transformation, to in my mind, Okay, these radically collaborative organizations, I don't think they ever stop transforming because they have devolved decision-making and organizational governance and evolution to the point that the organization is always ready to transform as it encounters new situations that the organization, as it's currently designed, isn't prepared for. I think that's why they're having such great economic success because they didn't see it as an activity that would stop. They said, we're going to get to a state in which we can always adjust, adapt, evolve, and be agile and nimble, not just as teams within an organization, but as an organization as a whole. Um, So I I would encourage people to think about it that way as well. Sounds really good. Matt, if people are interested in learning more, of course, they should buy your book. Uh, What other resources can you point uh, point us to if this is something we're trying to to learn about and in effect in our own organizations. Yeah. Well, as you've already said, right, my book is one of a number of books on this topic, uh, Corporate Rebels, Humanocracy, um, The No Limits Enterprise, uh, Reinventing Organizations. These are all fantastic books to go out, check out, um, uh, and explore. So uh, beyond that, oh, The Holacracy book as well by Brian Robertson. That's another great one. 
So beyond books, um, the Corporate Rebels website and their newsletter, I highly recommend subscribing to. You'll just get weekly sort of nuggets that you know, you'll probably eat up as you're into this kind of stuff. Uh, I do. I get it every week and love it. Um, uh, I also started a Slack community for my book. And if you go to my website, mattkparker.com, you'll be able to join the Slack community. Anybody can join. You don't even have to have bought the book or anything like that. It's really, it's meant to be a place for people that are interested in these ideas to be able to come together with others interested in the ideas, to share stories, to talk about it, to get advice, et cetera, and to just explore together. And so if you want to join a small but growing community of people doing that, just go to my website, mattkparker.com. Great. And the book is available uh, in paperback, Kindle, I assume, uh, audiobook. Any format is fine. Yep. Uh, there's no special scratch and sniffs or, or uh, <laughs> any features that would diminish the experience in any format. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, it's basically all the same content everywhere. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Matt. It's been an educational and entertaining conversation. I'm really excited to have read your book. I'm glad it's out there. I hope other listeners will uh, get some value from it as well, as well as from this conversation. Um, so yeah, anything else you'd like to add before we sign off today? Well, first, let me say thank you. And I hope your listeners got something out of this. And uh, I, I also wanted to say that on my website, um, uh, I, I have my email directly there on the website. It's matt at mattkparker.com. So if anybody's hearing this and they just want to ask me something directly without like joining the Slack community or something like that, feel free. I'm always open um, and, and looking forward to talking to people and meeting people and sharing thoughts. That's good. Thanks so much. Until next time, everybody. 